Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we'll be asking what archaeology can tell us that other sources can't about the history of Islam. Archaeology in what we might think of as the Islamic world began in the 19th century. But at that period, excavations were really focused primarily on biblical archaeology, the discovery or the attempt to prove the biblical past, or excavating classical sites related to the history of Greece and Rome. It's only really in more recent decades that the archaeology of Islam, the excavation of sites related to the Muslim past, has really expanded. And expanded it really has, from Andalusia in the West right through to the Gulf, into regions of India, and especially many different parts of the African continent, from Mali in the west to Ethiopia in the east, and southwards to the Swahili coast. In this episode, we'll be seeing how archaeological evidence, the material findings of excavations, give us data from on the spot and of the moment in the past in a really important contrast, and sometimes a contradiction, to what written sources show, since those written accounts on which historians often rely were so typically penned hundreds of miles and hundreds of years later. In this episode, I'll be talking with Professor Timothy Insel, who is Al-Qasimi Professor of African and Islamic Archaeology and Director of Research at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter. Hello, Tim. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello, Niall. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure, and I'm really excited because today we're going to be exploring really one of my real pet uh, subjects of great excitement, which is... Uh, which is archaeology and bring together, you know, with my lifelong passion and the study of Islam. This is, this is, a, yeah, as I say, kind of really a, a great, exciting day for me today. Mostly through Akbar's chamber, the, the experts that I'm talking to uh, work with textual materials in many different languages. And of course, the Islamic tradition, of course, is so rich in texts and writings in so many different languages of Asia and Africa and indeed Europe and the West now. But today we're, we're going to be looking at an entirely different data set, so to speak. We're going to be not looking at texts and words, but material traces of the Islamic past. And even though in Akbar's chamber, we've looked at certain regions of Africa, particularly the West Africa and uh, East Africa, today we're going to be delving into other regions of the continent and quite literally delving, I guess, digging into the soil of the continent, or at least you'll be telling us how you've done that and what you've found. So to start us off, Tim, can you just lay out for us what does an archaeological approach to the Islamic past show us that other, say, textual approaches miss? 
Okay. Well, I think that you've already identified one of the key elements of archaeology, which is significantly different to other sources, which is its emphasis on material culture. I think that's the critical thing, which, of course, from my perspective, from the work of, you know, methodology of most archaeologists would be obtained by excavations. So what it can do is it can provide data where no other sources exist. And I think that this is a critical point in relation to much of certainly of sub-Saharan Africa, is that we have limited or biased, and I'll say a little bit more about that later on, historical sources. So archaeology amplifies that and can also provide a counterbalance to that as well. So to, just to give you a brief example, we've um, found a site that's called Hala in eastern Ethiopia. It's near the famous city of Harar, which again, I'll say a little bit about later on. And this site was completely unrecorded historically, but it's a very significant town site containing workshops and mosques and cemeteries and settlement areas that is revolutionizing our understanding, not just of Eastern Ethiopia, but also of aspects of Indian Ocean trade and things like this as well. So this is something where archaeology is directly contributing in the absence of historical sources. So that would be one aspect. Another would be that historical sources are often not interested in the things that archaeology can provide us with information on. And I would characterize that as the everyday life of the mass of the people that lived in Africa or elsewhere in the Islamic world as well. So, for example, on aspects such as diet, I don't, I don't mean cuisine, I don't mean things that are recorded in culinary manuals, I mean the everyday foodstuffs that um, these people ate and that we can learn about from, for example, zooarchaeological, which means bones, and archaeobotanical, the seeds and the pollen and other sorts of plant remains, that we can learn a lot from that. So that would be one critical element. Another would be disease. And again, I don't mean the medical treatises that we have in the Arabic historical sources. I mean the day-to-day -day injuries that might be got through work, how people suffered through work injuries, um, military injuries, Plague. There's a lot of work going on, for instance, on plague now through DNA in Africa. So these sorts of aspects as well. And then another one that I was thinking about and preparing, you know, arranging my thoughts for this uh, for our chat today is uh, might not seem significant, but it's important for everyone are latrines. How do people get rid of waste? So everyone from a caliph to the peasant has the same biological function and must dispose of this waste that we generate inside us. But that waste can provide significant amounts of information. So it can be in the form of coprolites, which are fossilized feces, you know, archeological feces, or in the deposits in the latrine pit. So there might be um, microorganisms in there that indicate the sorts of diseases that people had in the guts, or you may have digested or semi-digested foodstuffs that have passed through. There's, so there's all sorts of aspects there. And um, a month or so ago, I was at the site of Madanat al-Zahra near Cordoba in Spain, and there, there's been fantastic work done, not just on the architecture of latrines. You can imagine the Caliph's latrine is this fancy carved marble structure with lovely bronze taps, whereas the soldiers just had a hole in the floor. So we've got that. But there's also work being done in relation to the differences between the parasites that these individuals were carrying and, and the diet, the foodstuffs that they were consuming. So we can learn an awful lot from that as well. So I think a key thing is that um, archaeology can give us a more holistic view. And what I mean by that is many historical sources are the record of the learned classes and the record of the elites. So archaeology is more meritocratic. It, 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 it's more 
uh, you know, it, it can tell us about all levels of society. So I think that's a critical difference there in in, in relation to the uh, difference to the other sources, as you mentioned in the question. Now, another point would be, um, and I briefly said that, is it can um, challenge established narratives or perceptions. I think that's critical. And you said that you've you've had talks on West Africa before, so I'm sure not many of your audience are aware of the city of Timbuktu. People have heard of it. They may not be able to place it on a map. It's in Mali, and they may not be sure why they've heard of it, but they've heard of it. Whereas the city of Gao, which is another city that I also excavated, I excavated in Timbuktu, was actually the much more important and larger settlement, both for mercantile activity and for the introduction of Islam into this region of West Africa than Timbuktu was. We don't get that impression from the historical sources, but we do get it from archaeology through, for example, the abundant trade goods that we have in Gao, and we don't have in Timbuktu. So this sort of narrative there can be reconstructed or interpreted through archaeological evidence, not in its entirety. Archaeology is by its nature an ephemeral subject and the evidence is only ever partial. But if we maximise the interpretation of this evidence, then we can begin to build these narratives from the material culture. I think that's significant. Something else that we can do is we can look at the settlement histories of places over a long term at a small scale. So whereas the historical sources may tell us about the history of the great cities of, for example, Cairo or Samarkand, these sorts of places, we may know less about you know, the sort of micro level. And an example of this would be the work that we've been doing in Bahrain, in the Arabian Gulf, where under our early Islamic Bahrain project for 22 years, it's been running now under the generous sponsorship of the crown prince there. And it's been remarkable, the longevity of work that we've been able to do there. But that's meant that we've been able to literally reconstruct the sequence of settlement in the Islamic period in that archipelago. So the chain of settlements moving from the small island of Muharraq. If you visit Bahrain, you'll land in Muharraq Island. That's where the international airport is. <laughs> so that was the first Islamic settlement. Then it moved into the larger island to the south where you would go. That's likely where your hotel would be, which is actually called Awal but it's the main island that people usually think is Bahrain. And there, there was an area called Bilad al-Qadim, which means the old country or the old town. And that was the Abbasid, you know, this famous dynasty, their capital. And then this fell out, you know, fell out into disuse for various region, reasons. And there was a movement a few kilometers to the west to Kalat al-Bahrain, the Bahrain fort that you can now see in its Portuguese incarnation. It's been restored there. So we've been able to work out this settlement history and that this movement around, which was linked in with differences in um, population and was linked in, of course, to currents in the wider Arabian Gulf as well. And this is significant also because Islamic archaeology has been neglected in many areas. I need to make that point. So this is something that people are seeing now that archaeology can contribute in many ways. In Bahrain, for instance, um, Islamic archaeology of Islamic occupation was only something that's really started in the last 30 years. Before that, people were working on the Dilmun period, which is, you know, this ancient uh, civilization that was connected with, with Mesopotamia and the legends of Gilgamesh and all these sorts of things. Or with the Tylos period, which was the Hellenistic period, you know, when Alexander the Great's admiral is meant to have gone past Bahrain. But the Islamic period was thought to be known. The population are Muslim. What can we learn from it? But actually, we're learning a significant amount. So I think that that's an important. And then a sort of final point that I would say in relation to how archaeology differentiates itself in relation to other sources would be 
how it can indicate the diversity of Muslim societies. And I think this is critical where the narrative in much of the news is you get Islam presented as some sort of homogenous entity and all Muslims as sort of unthinking robots following a very similar outlook. And clearly archaeology shows that there is great diversity there. And, you know, we can see this in many ways. One of the key ways also that we can see this is through how it differs in relation to the older beliefs and practices that can become integrated into Islamic societies. And archaeology can show this, for example, where in rare instances it's been possible to excavate Muslim burials. Generally, you can't because of prohibitions on disturbing the dead. But where it has been done, so, for example, in Central Asia, it's been clearly shown that there's a continuity of older grave types. So there there was um, a tradition of burying under kurgans, which are burial mounds that were used by nomadic societies. You get a continuity of this in the first two Islamic centuries after the conquest, so the 7th and 8th centuries CE, or also the use of um, the continued use of stone or brick built cysts, which is literally just a, a, a chest that's constructed in which you put the dead. And I should say that though they're using the or they're still using these older forms of um, burial structure, the dead as they're treated within the grave itself are recognizably Muslim because of the orientation is correct. There's, an, you know, towards the Qibla, towards Mecca, there's an absence of grave goods. There's no coffin. They're, they're shrouded if the shroud doesn't survive. But we know from the tightness and the constriction of the body in the grave chamber that these are recognizably Muslims, but they're having, um, you know, they're, they're drawing upon a pre-Islamic legacy. So I think those are some of the various points I would say that indicate how archaeology differs from other sources. That's so helpful, Tim, because, yeah, I mean, as, you, as you've laid out for us, really, as, as distinct from the textual sources we usually have, archaeology is really on the spot, not often, you know, so many of the textual sources we have, particularly for Africa, written hundreds of miles away. They yeah. might also be very often written hundreds of years later as well. So exactly. the archaeology data is on the spot, but also of the time, of that moment. And the other issue, you, you, which is also, I think, no less important, but perhaps rather more subtle, is that the point you made that as this thing from, let's say, the spotlight view that we'll get a text is written in a particular moment in time, even if it surveys, talks about a longer period, it's, it's a spotlight view from a particular moment in time. But as you've laid out for us with the case of, of Bahrain, not least, we get this sort of long durée developmental picture which at each moment is the, the data from the spot, from the moment, from the time, rather than uh, this view from later. And you've given us also this, this sort of sense in the really, actually, I, I should say for, uh, for listeners, you really are the great pioneer, really, and the great sort of program builder of the archaeology of Islam. And you've given us a, just a little modest glimpse of the scope of your work from Spain to Bahrain. And, uh, but, I'd like to turn, you know, particularly to to Africa, which is so often underrepresented in the study of the Islamic world, and uh, you know, perhaps not least because of those issues of later texts and so many of the languages of uh, of, uh, of African Islam, the Ajami languages, are, um, are so little studied, at least until recent years, but at least by by non-locals. So, turning to Africa, then, where so many your excavations have, have taken place. Can you tell us how does archaeology help us understand the, the development, the diffusion and the sort of element you've already brought up, the diversification of Islam in different regions of this very huge African continent? 
Okay. Well, I think that you've already made an important point there is that the written historical sources are often limited. And those that are concerned with the periods that I've primarily focused on, so let's say between the 9th and the 13th, 14th centuries are extremely limited and they're not written in the Ajami languages that, you know, that they're, they're, they're primarily or almost wholly in Arabic. There is another source of um, historical evidence in sub-Saharan Africa, which, of course, is oral traditions, which are a wonderful resource as well. But they're problematic in that they lack the time depth so that what we can say is that they have perhaps 200, 300 years depth. Um, and beyond that, they start to become rather legendary and mythic. So that can be an issue there. Though, of course, they contain nuggets of information, but we don't have oral traditions really, except in a couple of cases that deal with this earlier period. So archaeology can amplify this, and that relates to the first points that I was making in relation to your first question, in the absence of historical sources. But I think another important point to make, and I just briefly touched upon that in my previous answer, is that can act as archaeology can act as a counterbalance. Because what we get is that many of the Arabic sources that, for example, describe the Western Sahel region, that region just below the Sahara in sub-Saharan Africa, where I've done a lot of my work, where Gao and Timbuktu, where I've excavated, are situated, for example. Many of the sources there were compiled, as you said, 100, 200 years after the date. But even if they were compiled more closely, more close in time to the events that they're talking about, they were often not compiled by people who directly observed the events. So they could be second or third hand. You know, the, the, the detail could be lost. And the other emphasis that comes in these sources is that they often tend to exaggerate the more exotic details, if I can put it, about um, Africans and about African culture and African habits. I won't go into precise details about it, but archaeology can act as a counterbalance to that. So, for instance, in the Western Sahel, one of the key um, uh, aspects that's come out of archaeological research there was to challenge the notion of Arabs and of Islam as a civilizing force. If you were to read the historical texts at face value, you could think that there were these waves of conquerors that crossed the Sahara and brought in things such as cities, urbanism, metallurgy, social complexity, political complexity, mercantile complexity. And that's clearly not the case. So archaeology starting, you know, in order to be able to look at the Islamic period, you also have to look at the pre-Islamic period. So, for instance, the work of Roderick and Susan McIntosh at Rice University in Houston um, they were the first to show that, for instance, urbanism and metallurgy developed in an indigenous context at the site of Jene Geno in the inland Niger Delta area of Mali. And this was happening around about the, the first century BC, the first century AD. So long before you had the appearance of Islam, the first Muslims arrived there in the 8th, 7th, 8th centuries CE. So that was a significant realisation. Similarly in Gao, if you looked at the Arab historical sources and used them as your uh, source for interpreting the arrival of Islam and for Islamization there, you would think that this was due solely to the civilizing processes of Arabs, that there was no urban entity there, whereas our excavations have shown that urbanism goes back to the 6th century. And what occurs is that Islam is added onto pre-existing complexity. So we can see that, that almost from the start, you're seeing the integration of Islam within existing frameworks of belief within ex existing technologies, within existing settlements, and being spread by existing networks is a critical element. So um, another key realization is that this notion of conquering, 
that somehow that there were these waves of, you know, of, of nomad Arabs, usually the term, perhaps with local Berbers supporting them, coming down and taking these areas by force and then converting people by the sword through the agency of jihad. That has also been shown through, largely through archaeology, to be invalid. That, yes, there were jihads in West Africa. There were jihads in the 18th and 19th centuries, but they were reformist movements. They weren't the agents of the primary conversion in the first instance. So I think that that's a significant point there. Also, what I think archaeology has contributed to is to allowing us to learn something about the processes of Islamization in the absence of historical sources. So archaeology can be used to almost map the progression of Islam in a crude scale, but it can give us an idea of how it's spread through different socioeconomic groups, remembering that there are different ethnicities. We wouldn't want to map modern ethnicities onto ancient ones, but there are similar lifestyles. So you have nomads, you have um, urban population, you have sedentary agriculturalists growing the food, you have specialized iron workers, you have specialized fishing castes and groups, these sorts of things. So I think that that's a significant element. And what has been shown in, for instance, in the Western Sahel is that there were three phases of Islamization. So we have in the first instance, the nomads were the initial converts to Islam through their exposure on the Saharan desert edge to Muslims through trade, and that then they slowly moved down and brought their beliefs with them down into the urban settings where radiocarbon shows that this would be the next phase of, for instance, where you get the appearance of mosques and such like. And then the third phase, which is very long drawn out, and some would argue is even ongoing today, is the integration of Islam into the belief systems of the mass of the rural population, where they had pre-existing beliefs in, for instance, ancestral veneration which facilitated ties to the land and the growing of crops. These aren't things that you can instantaneously abandon. So this was drawn out. And how do we know this archaeologically? Well, the nomadic conversion we know because we can look at the dates on the gravestones. So this shows us that the earliest gravestones are up there. They're on the Saharan edge. And as you work your way down and you plot the gravestones, they get persistently later in time as you move down the river Niger. So that would show us that. Then, as I've already said, in the, where you get the large urban centres like Gao, excavation there associated with radio, radiocarbon dating shows that this is where the mosques are and this is where the sort of next agglomeration of Muslims are in the urban centres as the rulers perhaps convert to Islam or as merchants bring it in and then mercantile relations with co-religionists are easier. And then, as I said, it's much more longly, long, a longer drawn out process in the rural environment, and we can see that through the persistence of material cultures such as shrines, figurines made of clay that clearly don't fit within Islamic belief systems, an absence of mosques, an absence of Muslim bearers, and when they appear, they can be dated. So we'll be able to see this plotting out. So archaeology can help to explain this Islamization process. And to do this, we need also to draw upon other sources. I don't want it to sound like I'm just saying archaeology is everything. It isn't. We need to then draw upon the history. We need to also draw upon the ethnography and the anthropology, which, though I said we wouldn't want to map contemporary ethnicities onto ancient ones, there are all sorts of reasons why we wouldn't want to do that. They can still allow us to develop interpretations through the process of analogy to think about what is our material telling us? Why would this cult have persisted? Why would this particular belief system have persisted? How was it integrated? But here we have to be careful of not drawing in, falling into the trap of Eurosplaining. 
you know, whereby, oh, yes, we understand these processes of Islamization and we can tell you how it occurred. No, everything that I'm saying is at a crude level, but it's allowing us to begin to bag together the building blocks to examine this. So that would be the Western Sahel. But you rightly pointed out in your introduction to this question that Africa is a vast continent. So that model I just outlined may fit for a particular three centuries in Mali, a part of Mali, not the whole of the country, but it wouldn't fit in, for instance, the central Sudan. It wouldn't fit in the Nilotic Sudan. It wouldn't fit in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. It wouldn't fit on the East African coast. And there actually is the latter area is the most thoroughly investigated area of sub-Saharan Africa, the East African coast, where we have the pioneer work of people such as Mark Horton or Felix Charmy at the University of Dar es Salaam or Stephanie Wynne-Jones. They've done fantastic work. And what they've been able to do, where a similarity exists with the Western Sahel, is in, again, archaeology has shown the breaking down of this colonization civilization model. That was the paradigm of colonial archaeologists, like with the French archaeologists in the Western Sahel or British colonial archaeologists in the East African coast. And the reason why they had that paradigm is because if you're saying that there were older colonists, it's justifying your colonization to a certain extent. We're just doing what they did before. You know, we might be bringing a different form of civilization in inverted commas, but we're just doing what occurred before. And archaeology has shown that's that's nonsense. So Mark Horton's excavations at the site of Shanga in the Lamu archipelago with the sequence of mosques that he uncovered there, starting with very small timber mosques made of more or less mud, uh, uh, wooden poles with mud plastered on it, a local technique showing that they were integrating Islam into the local context. Though we now know that there was migration, there was Persian migration, so-called Shirazi migration, there was Arab migration as well, but it was being integrated within an African framework. That's the critical thing. And the net result of that, of course, was if you go to East Africa, you'll see what it is, it's referred to as the Swahili coast, these people of the coast, a cosmopolitan entity integrating Indian elements, Gulf elements, African elements, all sorts of different aspects together there that are reflected in the cuisine and the architecture. So a truly cosmopolitan society that we can see there um, on the East African coast. So I think that just gives you some sort of idea about um, what archaeology can help us in understanding the development and particularly the diversity and complexity of Islam in the wonderful continent that is Africa. That's so helpful. And I just want to sort of amplify, really, the, the importance of, of what you've laid out for us there, Tim, because the there probably is no more important historical question or topic of discussion in in Islamic studies, whether made by Muslim scholars over the centuries or by non-Muslim Western scholars, than conversion, than the acceptance mm. of acceptance of Islam. This is sort of paradigmatic from the earliest Islamic historical texts, the lives of the Prophet, right through till so much scholarship being produced today. And what you're really showing is that conversion is the term you've used, Islamization. It's not just a gradual process, but it's as you've laid out for us, a series of phases that are, in a sense, relatively distinct, at least can be shown to be distinct phases in, in the archaeological record. And in particular contexts, I would emphasize, though, in particular contexts, I wouldn't say that was universal. That model that I was explaining is for that particular uh, chronological, that particular moment in time, if I can put it like that, and that particular geographical context there for the Western Sahel. 
we can do similar modeling. And I, I've got a, sl a slight example later on from our work in, in, in um, Ethiopia, which shows a very different Islamization pattern. But it's that notion of Islamization. And I would also add that um, it, it, what it doesn't show is, is Arabization. People often confuse the two. And what we're not seeing is that we're seeing Islamization, you know, the, 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 the integration of Islam into different diverse aspects of life, you know, influencing diet, influencing religion, uh, you know, through the appearance of the mosque and changing burial traditions and such like. But it's not Arabization. That's a great. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah, that's an important distinction, isn't it? I mean, and particularly in the regions of Africa that you, you're talking about, which yes. I guess would be a separate topic where versions oh. of the Arabic languages are spoken. Indeed, people are, you know, identify as, as Arabs uh, too. But I mean, to go back to the, to your key point there, I think this your your sort of interjection there, I think really sort of, you know, kind of methodologically pushes the, you know, the importance of, of an archaeological method is we're not finding some general sociological or social science model that can maybe be pushed everywhere. It's the no. on the spot, the empirical, the hard data. And I think what's also really important here, too, in the kind of the, the series of phases that you've marked out there, at least in the, the regions of Africa you're talking about, uh, and the distinction from this isn't Islamization through a sudden moment of jihad bringing about conversion. The, this archaeological view, this view from the, 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 the data, from the material evidence, is neither the view of the, the written text of the ulama, the scholars of Islam, who might be you know, interested in this sudden, let's say, intellectual moment or indeed mm. even a, a, a jihad moment of, of, of conversion, nor the view of court chronicles, which is the other major, albeit later, data set we have from the Fung dynasty or other sort of African dynasties, which are often celebrating jihads again, or indeed the wars and the conquest of rulers of said court. So, you know, the, the very different views from we get from the text, perhaps because of the, the positionality of the textual writers, the ulama, the sort of, so to speak, the clerics or the court historians. I, yes, I would agree. Um, but I would say that jihad certainly is a factor later on. What I'm saying, what I'm, just to qualify that point, it, it's not a factor in relation to the periods that particularly that we've been looking at in either the Western Sahel or Ethiopia. But of course, there were uh, jihads in both those areas later. I mean, Ahmed Gran, Ahmed the left-handed in Harar, it was his power base. Um, with that jihad against the, the Christian civilization on the other side, the Rift Valley, primarily was a very significant factor in pushing out some form of Islamic conversion, often at the point of a sword and didn't last very long. But it's very different the sorts of processes in Ethiopia that we're mapping earlier on, based on the archaeological evidence, where it was more to do with mercantile connectivity, like it was in the Western Sahel, but with a very different uh, result. It didn't have the same sort of patterning, nomad, townspeople, sedentary agriculturalist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, Ahmed Rahn, I think the 1560s, isn't it, in the East, and then the late yes. 18th, especially 19th century jihads in West Africa. Yeah, so the earlier moment then, isn't it, that sort of, yeah, that, that you're finding through the archaeology. Well, having mentioned then with Ahmed Rahn then and, and, and Ethiopia, perhaps we can focus in on, on well, at least what is now Ethiopia and turn to the the, the city of, of Hara, the Muslim holy city in the Horn of Africa and what's at least today part of uh, Eastern Ethiopia and somewhere where you've done a, a great deal of, of, of detailed and again pioneering excavation. So how have your excavations there in, in Hara, and particularly of its mosques, 
helped us deepen our understanding of Muslim religious life in this famous, and yet still, until <laughs> very recently then, poorly understood city. Okay. Well, you're entirely correct. It is a very important city. It's it's arguably the most important Muslim city in the Horn of Africa, and its influence extends outside of the Horn of Africa, down the East African coast and into the Sudan as well. But it's not so well known in the West. Uh, you know, I said about everyone's heard of Timbuktu, even though they can't place where it is. Um, not that many people will have heard of Harao, but it was comparable in terms of it being a centre of scholarship and also a centre of sanctity because it's often referred to as the city of saints. I mean, whether this is correct or not, I haven't personally counted them, but the figure that I've been told is that there are 102 shrines and 110 mosques, most of which are inside the walled city, because it, the, the old city of Hara still has this astounding wall around it. You know, it's uh, not what we would call medieval, but it's a, it's a remarkable stone-built wall punctuated with gates. And within that, you know, there's this dense network of Islamic sacrality which is of great importance in the surrounding region too. So I think um, what archaeology has been able to contribute here is, first of all, is um, chronology again. Now, archaeologists might seem obsessed with chronology, but this is one of the critical elements, is to be able to get the basis of the dating in order then to substantiate or refute the sorts of interpretations that have been put forward in the past, as well as develop one's own interpretations based on the material culture development. And I think that this is very critical in relation to Harar because there are local narratives because of the importance of the city um, within Islamic traditions that claim that Islam reached Harar in the time of the Prophet. Mm -hmm. So this has been claimed that this was about 615, to be absolutely precise. So being an archaeologist interested in Islam in Africa, of course, I wanted to test that assertion to see if there was validity there. And there have been other suggestions also of which seem to be more realistic, more realistic. We know, of course, there was the Hijra, there was the, you know, the, 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 the migration to Ethiopia, but that wasn't to this region, that was to Aksum, which is some significant distance away from Harar. So we can't connect that historically with it. But there have been other suggestions of Islamization, you know, the Islamic first conversions in the 10th to 11th century, which based on mm. our excavations and another site seemed re reasonable. So in order to um, test this, we were again in a very privileged situation. Normally you cannot go and excavate an extant, you know, living mosques that are being used by congregations, but the local antiquities office and the local government wanted us to. They wanted um, to know the chronology of these structures. So we were able to excavate in six mosques, which was fantastic. And all of them, we were able to obtain um, material, primarily charcoal, to radiocarbon date. And radiocarbon dating is now accepted as a valid method by most, pe most people. And you can use it along with the finding of, for instance, imported artifacts that the chronology is known of. And all of these radiocarbon dates from each of these mosques were between the late 15th and earliest 20th century. So really, this showed that this city appeared to be a much later foundation than the earlier narrative suggested. Now, one wouldn't want to, although, yes, Islam was the focus of that particular aspect of the work, one wouldn't want necessarily to base your idea of the foundations of a city purely upon religious buildings, because, of course, there could have been earlier religious buildings. So we also did excavations in settlement areas, so palaces and houses and such like. And again, the radiocarbon dates showed a 15th to 19th century spectrum. So we've got 
you know, a good range of dates from a good range of different types of sites. So what this suggests is that the city was, in fact, um, a late foundation. So we're secure in this now. And subsequently, an, a French historian, Amélie Chekroun, has been back through the historical sources, and I'm pleased to say agrees with our archaeological interpretations. And it really does seem that um, Harar was a, a late 15th century foundation. And it's linked particularly with its role as the capital of the Sultanate of Adal, which was one of the sultanates in the region. And this was um, occurring at the time of Ahmed Gran, what we talked about oh. earlier uh, earlier in this chat today, um, who was killed in 1543 and had his jihads that were directed at um, the Christian highlands, as I've already said. However, this wasn't a factor in Islamization. So again, you know, that's an important point to make. So what we had to do was to turn to archaeological data again to assess Islamization. So in Harar, we don't, we're not able yet to, this is a, a city that's currently inhabited. We're not able to look to the extent that we would want to. It's not a purely archaeological site. It's difficult. In an urban environment, you have to find small keyholes between the houses, in alleyways, in rubbish dumps, in very nasty environments sometimes, in order to be able to get your archaeological sequences. But we were lucky in being able to complete excavations in a site of Hala, which is about 40 kilometers to the northwest of Hara. And mm. it would appear that this was the settlement that was inhabited by the population of Hara before Hara was founded. So this may be the ancestral population there. And what we were able to do there was to excavate in all the sorts of different areas that we wanted to. So in settlements, I talked about the workshop areas earlier on, inside mosques. And the archaeology showed very different Islamization patterns to those that I defined for the Western Sahel. So here it was a lot more fluid. So what we were able to do here is, unlike in um, the Western Sahel, we were able to excavate a few Muslim burials. So um, the reason for that is that the current population of the area, the Oromo people, are not connected with the ancient people of Hala. They've sort of assumed now a legendary status, and let's say that they're profitably uh, the ancestors of the people of Hara. So there's a disconnect between the current Muslim population and the ancient Muslim population, which made it easier to excavate these burials because they were not seen as ancestral, which is a critical point to make. So these were ch ch three children's burials that had been um, exposed by cattle moving across the burials. So the human remains had been kicked out, which meant that we were able to sample the burials for teeth. And teeth are very important indeed, because we were able to undertake what's called strontium isotope analysis. And this is important because the isotope ratio reflects, that's absorbed by the teeth, reflects the different ge ge geologies from which water-soluble strontium is absorbed while that individual is forming their tooth enamel. Oh, so what this means in archaeological terms is you're able to explore past population mobilities. So this would have been wonderful to use in the Western Sahel, to you know, support that idea of the different population groups. Here we were able to do it. And what this indicated is there was a much more, as I said, a fluid situation in terms of Islamization. So here that there was a Muslim community in the main urban population center from the 11th to 12th centuries. But at the same time, they were also out in the surrounding rural communities as well. So there wasn't that rigorous division amongst it. And they may also have been in the um, the surrounding nomadic communities too. So significant difference there. So archaeology essentially offers the means of um, attaining this information, which I think is critical. Uh, so Harar 
a late foundation shown through archaeology, but we've been able to push back the narrative of Islamization in Eastern Ethiopia based on archaeological data to add to the limited historical sources that we have there to at least the 10th century. So a wonderful record that we're being able to begin to be able to expose there. Yeah, I mean, this point about chronology, I mean, is so important at a, a range of levels, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, the, the Islamic written tradition itself as the historical tradition that the term is tarikh, literally date. So chronology is really an essential part of the Islamic historical tradition too. So it's perhaps no surprise that the locals in Hara, who you're always cooperating with and often actually work at the request of local scholars or officials. I mean, they're really concerned about dates as well. And and from the discovery of stratigraphy among archaeologists, it's really one of the real absolutely key uh, uh, things that archaeology brings to the, the table for us. But now I want to ask a, you a question, Tim, that I can never resist asking archaeologists, which is, can you tell us about a couple of your own favourite finds and why they were so exciting for you? Well, archaeologists always like answering that question as well, <laughs> okay. because that allows you to revisit your, your favourite finds. And that is one of the reasons for doing archaeology, to be honest, is because you want to find nice things as well. I mean, it's part of human nature, isn't it? So what would I say? Well, actually, I've, I've got three. I've picked I picked three that I would I would like to say something about. Um, the first would be a cache, you know, a hoard of hippopotamus tusks. So about 70 of these that I found um, in a heap with a harpoon on top that may have been used to dispatch these hippopotamuses. And they've been placed underneath the floor of a rich merchant's house or palace in Gao, the city that I was talking about, in the citadel in the main, you know, Muslim mercantile area. They were had been laid on wooden beams. Now, these themselves don't usually survive, but fortunately they'd been exposed to fire at some point. So they were partially carbonized, which is perfect because they gave a radiocarbon date which once calibrated, which means that you work out this, the, you know, the spectrum of date from it, was ninth to 10th centuries. So this was a horde of material. And I think its importance is one, well, it's unique. I don't know of any other instances of a find of material like that. You know, this is a, a remarkable find representing the dispatching of a significant amount of hippopotamuses. Also, because I think that they were connected with trade. They were a trans-Saharan trade commodity and that they were being transported particularly to the workshops of North Africa and Al-Andalus, so Islamic Spain. So once I started looking into the literature and relate, I didn't know that hippopotamus ivory, you know, when you think of ivory, you tend to think of elephants. But actually hippo ivory has its own particular qualities. It's um, a material that retains its whiteness. Elephant ivory tends to yellow over age. So just a, a, a small uh, inconsequential fact that until the modern era, um, false teeth were made of hippo ivory because of those properties. You wouldn't want your nasty yellow dentures so that they were made from that. And also good quality billiard balls. The white ball was made from hippo ivory as well. They certainly weren't things that were being produced in these workshops in uh, Al-Andalus or North Africa. But there it would have been used for inlays, I think. So the whiteness of the inlays in the sorts of mosque furniture that you'll see you know, the, 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 these types of elements like that, boxes that made into European treasuries. It still needs much more refined research in order to be able to differentiate the extent to which it was being used. But it was an exciting find in relation to that. And it's also um, important historically, because this period was one when Al-Andalus was well connected to Gao. Now, I've already said that wasn't a colonial relationship. It wasn't. 
actually it was a relationship it seems to be between equals so for example also from Gowan dating from the early 12th century there were five imported marble gravestones found ready carved that had been made from marble that source analysis showed were from the quarries of Macael which is just outside the port of Almeria which is on the very southern coast of Spain and these were sent across the Sahara during the period of control of North Africa and Spain by the Almoravid dynasty. So what this may have been connected with, and this is something that I've written about recently or expanded ideas of other people about, is it may have been to do with a phase of re-Islamization that was occurring in Gao. So mm -hmm. the Almoravids, you know, with their Maliki, Tenets and Sunni may have been reacting to what may have been um, an earlier Ibadi or Karajite influenced Islam that existed in the Western Sahel prior to this date. You know, other people more qualified than me have put forward these ideas, but the material culture would seem to fit in within that. So these hippo tusks have actually acted as an impetus. And now I've started an excavation project just outside the Alcazaba in Almeria, looking for the sub-Saharan African. So we did our first excavations there That's in great. April. So that was great. Now, the second artifact that I would say that was a brilliant, well, for me, was a remarkable find was we found a cross, a shirt, a pottery, Coptic, possibly Coptic glazed ware or Hijazi ware that's painted with a cross. And this only came out when we were washing the ceramics. And there's a clear crucifix cross shown on that. And this was from the first Christian building that um, has been discovered in Bahrain that we have the privilege of excavating that dates from the, it was founded in the mid sixth century and it was abandoned in the mid eighth century. So this is from that brief window of Christianity that existed in Bahrain before the population converted mm -hmm. to Islam. And the building that we've been excavating is, um, we're almost sure, the bishop's house. It's the bishopric. Um, it's a large complex, very well built, internally plastered. There are graffitis carved inside showing a fish symbol, which of course is an early symbol for Christianity. Uh, Kiro symbols as well, um, as well as... Uh, beautifully um, molded plaster that's the same as, for instance, has been found in Karg Island Monastery on the adjacent coast of Iran. And this was um, a building that was associated with a bishop. It's in a village called Samahij, which is a corruption for the name of Mashmahig, which is a bishop or a diocese that's recorded in the synods of the Church of the East that used to be referred to as the Nestorian Church. They don't like being called, the believers don't like being called Nestorians. They prefer to be called Church of the East because they say their beliefs go, and they do, beyond, you know, that 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 name itself. But that was an extremely exciting find because it was like material testimony to that period of Christianity, but also to connect, if it is Coptic glazeware, to connections with another Christian community far away at that very exciting time, that transitional period, that late antique period, you know, when there's Byzantium and there's the Sasanians and there's this new powerful religion coming out of the Arabian Peninsula, Islam, of course. So that was a very exciting find there. And I should credit the student who found it and watched it in the first instance, our <laughs> Tekli Hemanat, for uh, identifying the cross. That's an important point. And then the third piece I would say is from the site of Hala. And what this was is it's just a fragment of bone, like a, a, a circle of bone that is actually a handguard for a bow drill. And this is important because in burnt into or drilled into the handguard, you would have used it to protect your hand from the spindle as you're using a bow drill to drill materials. And there are five holes drilled into it show that it had been used. It's the femur. It's part of a femur from a bone from a large equid, so from a horse or a donkey. And this is significant 
because I think, or and not just me, other well-qualified scholars think that it represents the transfer of Gujarati technology to Harlem. Mm. Why would I say that? Because this is the type of drill that was used to drill hard stone beads, and in particular, carnelian beads, which was a speciality and still is to a certain extent of production in the town of Kambat in Gujarat. And we also have in the workshop in which we found this um, handguard, fragments of heat altered carnelian, discarded wasted carnelian beads. And when a specialist looked at the way that they'd been drilled, Mark Kanoyer at the University of Wisconsin, he found that they'd been drilled using double dry diamond drill bits, which again is a characteristic Gujarati or Indian technology. And then when uh, a colleague from the Field Museum in Chicago. She looked at the at the sourcing of the where the where the carnelian came from, Gujarat, also Iran, and then an unidentified source as well. So I think that this 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 is such an important find. Just this small bit of bone that could have been discarded, and unfortunately, a lot of archaeologists used to not less so now not keep their bones because they saw it as irrelevant. You must always keep your bones. You could learn so much. This small piece of bone is potentially evidence for technological transfer. It's evidence for this cosmopolitanism that I've been talking about, this medieval Indian Ocean world that wasn't a series of isolated, fragmented, non-communicative civilizations. It was this vast cauldron of interconnectivity and communication. So I would I would end by saying that that was that, that, that was also a very exciting thing, that small fragment of bone. Well, you've taken us there, yeah, from the, you know, the, the little nitty gritty of, of archaeological data to the the really big pictures, yeah, of the, the the interconnections of Africa and indeed the interior regions of Africa, as you mentioned, not just the 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 long established sort of Swahili coastal regions that we might have thought, well, yeah, of course they're interconnected. And I and I think certainly you've surprised me, and maybe I, I dare say many of our listeners as well, with your choice of hippo tusks uh, across and a bone drill as the, you know the things that would excite an archaeologist of Islam. But but yeah, as you've said, these point us to really big historical questions and art historical questions as well. I mean, the the ivory, uh, the, the ivory carvings of Al-Andalus and medieval Sicily, of course, are sort of so well known to art historians. But yeah, this the source of these uh, hippo tusks, I'm, I'm sure we're not. Well, having looked back across the, the deep Islamic past and across so many of the excavations in, in your career, Tim, finally, can you tell us what do you see as the future prospects for the archaeology of Islam, whether in Africa or elsewhere? Well, it's always difficult to, to, to sort of do the crystal ball thing. But yes, I mean, there are certain things that are emerging that I sort of trends that I've been able to notice over the past few years. I think one of them, and this is to do with making archaeology relevant, we have to think of that now. We have to think of impact, for instance, in research that has to be factored in, um, is an increasing focus on the environment. You know, for instance, um, on water management systems, so the canats or the fallage, you know, the underground water channels, all these sorts Ooh. of things, that is going to become much more a significant element of research. So this is, uh, at the moment, one of the key research areas of archaeologists looking at the medieval period in Spain. So how can these contribute? You know, they're in a drought situation. The University of Granada um, has a specialist in this and also in the uh, land use systems what lessons perhaps can be learned from earlier systems of land use that we could transpose to the modern where we think we know all the answers and clearly we don't when we're going through a climate emergency there are lessons to be learned from the past people mm -hmm. survived in harsh environments so I think that's one thing 
I think also that there will be more of a growth of thematic research. We're able to move now beyond single site focus or regional focuses to look at, for instance, it's a very crude term, but for instance, the archaeology of Islamic technologies or medicine or cuisines or gender, these sorts of broader questions. And these would be taken for granted in other areas of archaeology. But Islamic archaeology was very much the handmaiden of art history until a few decades ago. So it wasn't interested in these sorts of issues, but things have changed. And I see this as an emergent area. Um, there are also cha major changes occurring in Saudi Arabia. I think that perhaps we're going to see an archaeological focus on the very origins of Islam, depend on, on how much, of course, survives in the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Uh, you know, there's been an awful lot of development, but I think we'll see interesting things emerging there soon. Um, I think there's also something that people are increasingly realizing, which is good. And I mean, in, in areas where they have the sites is the relevance of Islamic archaeology. So the growth in museums. OK, we've seen the flagship projects like the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha and Qatar. But I'm talking about more everyday museums, site museums, these sorts of things. And also ways of um, that these can be integrated into school curricula and into developing economic potential for tourism. And I don't just mean people getting on flights in Europe and North America and going to these countries. I mean, inter South, South or however you want to call it, regional tourism as well. And I think that's something we're going to see much more of a growth of over the next few years. I think also, and I hope this will impact within the United States, for example, is that we'll see more interest in the archaeology of Islam. I'm still always amazed by how few posts there are in US universities in what I would call the archaeology, you know, specialists in the archaeology of Islam as opposed to art history or whatever. So I would hope that that would change in such a powerful and uh, rich country. And of course, as the, the, the population demography changes, that this will be reflected in the universities of the United States. And I think this is a key point to end with, is that the archaeology of Islam is now mainstream. It's no longer a sub-discipline of art history that's solely taught in a few Western area studies institutes, if I can put it like that, and art history departments. It's archaeology that matters, and it's archaeology that's pushing now at the forefront of the discipline as well. So I'd like to end with that point. Professor Timothy Insull, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbar's Chamber. You're welcome. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Da 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 da